Hi, everybody. It's Jerry Lee, the co-host of Algae Talk. Wanted to make a couple announcements before this episode. First, it was a wonderful conversation, very informative about drug algae with David Kahn. We couldn't contain it under 30 minutes, so make sure you check out the next episode because they're linked together. Also, we now have this opportunity to discuss some of these podcasts and continue the conversation we're going to do this on the Doc Matter app and website. As a college member, you already have a membership. So check your previous emails, or if you need help with your account, email support at docmatter.com. Okay, let's get started. Please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Today, we have a special episode of Allergy Talk. Based on your feedback, we will be discussing the approach to delayed reactions to medications, a challenging dilemma in allergy and immunology that I certainly could use some advice on. If you have an idea for a future episode of Algae Talk, we are very responsive to your feedback. Please email us. That email address is allergytalk, one word, at acaai.org. Welcome again, everyone. My name is Jerry Lee. I am an associate professor at Emory University and the co-host of Allergy Talk. I'm always joined by my fellow co-hosts, Dr. Marin Kalangara, and we are really excited to have one of the foremost experts of drug allergy for our program. I'd like to introduce Dr. David Kahn. He is a professor of medicine pediatrics at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. He's the director of the Allergy Immunology Fellowship and was recently elected as secretary treasurer of the academy. Dave, I'm so glad to see you. Welcome to Allergy Talk. I've known you, Dave, since I joined the in-training exam committee. I think I joined around like 2011 or 2012. But I think it's worth also noting that Marin has also known you the same amount of time because I think that's around the time she joined your fellowship at UT Southwestern. In 2012. In 2012, right. Almost a decade ago. Time flies. I know. <laughs> so this is a great opportunity to talk about stories. I'm so curious. So Marin, let's start with you. What do you recall about being a fellow at UT Southwestern? Well, everyone already knows how great Dave is as a teacher. And so obviously I reaped all of the benefits of that as a fellow. So the one thing I remember is that he was just very methodical in his approach to every single case. And that's something that I remember even eight years later. And when I see difficult cases, I try to replicate what he used to do. I was really lucky to have had him as a fellowship director. I definitely see that working with him on the entry exam committee. Also, probably one of the most fun committees I've ever been on just because of the environment it creates. Dave, I don't know if you have any good Marin Kalangara stories from fellowship. How much time do we have left, Jerry? <laughs> I don't know if this is a 30 minute podcast, actually. There's plenty of great stories about Marin, some of which she probably doesn't want me to share. Yes, please be kind. <laughs> oh, They're all good. They're all good stories. But I think one thing that's worthwhile noting is that so I've been program director now for over 20 years and, and Marin definitely had the most highest scholarly output of any of our fellows. She was so enthusiastic and driven. We have a tradition of having a Jeopardy game when the, the seniors graduate. 
And Marin was the only fellow that was able to beat the faculty in, in the Jeopardy. So we had to change the rules after that. I, I won't. I will spare Marin the details about her glory in the, the in the college football, which is uh, legendary. So no, we'll I heard about that. that. No, 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 no. Marin, you have to tell the trophy story. The fact that that Dave had it on his uh, the trophy out on his table for like about a year after in his office. That's what I'm saying. That's why I heard about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. It was a, a very proud moment. So Marin has continued to train our fellows. Obviously, we have yet to live up to her standards, but we're greatly appreciative. And obviously, it's really great to reunite virtually as we all adjust to the pandemic. I think we can just get into it. I, I thought a good place to start was just to set the background of the delayed reactions we look for when we approach a drug allergy patient, I, I think we're very familiar with type one hypersensitivity and so on, but a lot of these delayed drug eruptions, sometimes it's really hard to know where to start. So I'd love to get your insights, Dave, on what do you think would be your starting advice when we're just trying to figure out what's going on when someone tells us about a delayed drug reaction? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And in fact, it's really hard to we use the terms immediate and delayed all the time, and I think we all have a sense of we know what they mean. But when you really try and define that, the timing of this is really evolving. So, for example, not that long ago, we were saying an immediate reaction would occur within less than an hour of the, the last exposure to the medication. Anything that's more than an hour is going to be delayed. Now we know that many IgE-mediated reactions can occur longer than an hour, so that has shifted now at least to six hours, and maybe even up to 24 hours. So the timing really is that envelope is really getting pushed. So where do you draw the line in the sand? Right. Most people now would say that anything that happens beyond a day of exposure is probably delayed. A lot of these patients are taking these medications multiple times, and at some point, they have this reaction. So it's, I think, we tend to, I think, about delayed reactions more based on the, the phenotypic characteristics more so than even like the timing of it, so to speak. So, for example, if someone has anaphylaxis, we never think of that as really being a delayed reaction. And we tend not to think of urticarial reactions as being delayed reactions. But anything outside of that, it could be delayed and it certainly could be. Exemitous reactions. No one thinks of that as being an immediate reaction. So mm -hmm. I think we tend to shift phenotypically when we're really talking about these delayed reactions, because at the end of the day, it's very rare to find the patients that can remember that says, oh, yeah, 13 hours after I took that last dose is when I had the reaction. You know, sure. they're, they're lucky to remember the name of the medication. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So I thought that before we actually got into a couple of cases, we could just talk about the different phenotypes of delayed drug reactions and just key clinical features for establishing the diagnosis of the different phenotypes? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. So I think we still are, we tend to be focused on the Gell and Coombs classification. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that classification scheme. It still works for a lot of drug hypersensitivity reactions, certainly not all of them. Obviously, we are very familiar with type 1 immediate reactions that are IgE-mediated. Type 2 reactions, which would be cytotoxic reactions, for example, drug-induced cytopenias, et cetera. As allergists, we don't often see those type of patients. 
The type 3 or immune complex reactions, we think about serum sickness reactions, and more commonly we see serum sickness-like reactions where this is maybe a week or more after exposure that patients may get fever, arthralgias, and a rash, and that generally that triad of symptoms is, is fairly typical for serum sickness-like reactions. We lump serum sickness-like reactions into immune complex from a mechanistic standpoint, but in reality, no one really hasn't been able to identify immune complexes in these serum sickness-like reactions, but they behave like that, although they're not quite as severe. We don't see the degree of nephritis or hypocomplementemia, et cetera. And then the classic type 4 uh, reactions we now recognize as being multiple different types of reactions. And when we break them down from an from a immune perspective, which is what Werner Pichler did probably more than 20 years ago, subdivided the type 4s into a type 4 A, B, C, D. And that's based on the effector cells that are involved and the cytokines that are involved. So the type 4A would be the Th1 type reaction, clinically tends to look more eczematous, type 4B reactions, which are Th2, where we see more robust eosinophilia, and that could be still an exanthem, or classically we think of DRESS syndrome as being in a type 4B. The type 4C are more cytotoxic reactions, and here we think that maybe SJS, TEN would be examples of that. And then the type 4D, which is more neutrophilic, and the classic example of that would be AGEP or acute generalized exanthematous pustulosis. So that's gel and Coombs, but it certainly doesn't explain all of the type of delayed reactions. And we see various forms of, you know, leukocytes, classic vasculitis. We see uh, drug-induced lupus. So this, these would be other delayed reactions. And so there are things that fall outside of that gel and Clumes reaction that I think is, are important to recognize. And a whole host of different cutaneous manifestations, which I think are you know, beyond the scope of what we want to talk about uh, during this 30 minutes. But hopefully that's a, at least an overview flavor of the, the endotypes and uh, introduction to phenotypes of delayed hypersensitivity. So it sounds like one component is getting a good story of the reaction, the timing and the symptoms. And then if you have a list of possibilities of what each type of reaction is, it's a pattern recognition in a sense. We use heuristics and we plug it in. This sounds like this and so on. How, how well are we able to correctly classify patients or how often do you see more of the could be multiple types? And, or is that even important? Yeah, I, I think it's very difficult if, if someone has a very classic syndromic reaction, say a serum sickness-like reaction, okay, that's pretty easy. Someone has very classic criteria for dress, okay, that's fine. But there's a lot of, of especially patients who just have certain cutaneous eruptions, and they may have a little bit of eosinophilia, maybe they've got a little fever and things like that. And there's a lot of gray area, I would say, maybe even more so than with immediate reactions. So I think sometimes it is very difficult to really carefully phenotype these delayed drug reactions. I think your point about whether it matters or not, probably it really only matters that you need to identify what are the severe ones mm -hmm. and what are the not severe ones. And I think mm -hmm. if you can make that distinction, then it's less important in terms of which bucket that they may need to fall into. 
So right off the bat, you mentioned too that I would consider some of the warning or danger sign ones, and that would be Steven Johnson syndrome, blistering, bucositis, desquamation. You mentioned dress syndrome, systemic symptoms, organ involvement. What do you think would be the danger signs or the ones that if we're trying to make this distinction between serious versus maybe less serious? Yeah, I think it's important to know these kind of danger or warning signs that people talk about, which would indicate be more indicative of a potential you know, scar, or what we call the severe cutaneous adverse reaction. Fever is always a big one. Just the general wellness of the patient. Most of these patients are look toxic. The extent of the skin involvement can be a, a tip-off. If there's any bullous disease, that can be important. If there's any mucosal involvement, if there's any lymphadenopathy, and if there's diffuse pustulosis or the skin is painful. And then for dress, if they have a lot of intense facial edema. So these would all be somewhat atypical things for just a typical benign exanthem, but could certainly be seen mm. in patients with more severe drug reactions. And then from a laboratory standpoint, any evidence of liver involvement or uh, kidney involvement would be the two big things to be looking for. Obviously, eosinophilia can occur with a lot of different things. We look at that too, sure. So... I've always been confused about where AGIP and like multifocal fixed drug eruptions stand in that spectrum of severe versus non-severe because some classifications include them and some don't. Yeah, I think with AGIP, I think the the vast majority of AGIP reactions are really fairly uh, benign. If you really look at the large case series fairly consistently, there is a 5% mortality in, in, in these patients. Uh, so I think that's certainly why it fits into the severe category. In terms of the patients with more of the, the kind of diffuse fixed drug eruptions, and I think the problem is, I suspect it's what we were talking about earlier, is you know the classification. Because there's a lot of people who say this is an overlap of this and this, you know, because they can look so similar. So you have someone who's got mucosal involvement and then these diffuse lesions and boy, that must obviously be a severe cutaneous reaction. Well, in fact, maybe that's just a fixed drug eruption with more diffuse involvement and some mucosal involvement, which generally has a much more benign course than these other ones. So I think a lot of it has to do with the uncertainty of what it really is. And someone might label it one way when it may not be uh, that. It, that's my take on it anyway. So I thought we could first talk about just the approach to a non-severe delayed reaction. So for instance, the patient with just this non-specific rash label attached to an antibiotic, what's your general approach? Is there any utility for skin testing in these patients or do you generally just proceed to a challenge? And if so, how exactly do you conduct these challenges? Yeah, I, I think for the majority of what we would call like a benign exanthem, so this would be someone who has a non-urticarial eruption, it's this uh, morbilliform or maculopapular eruption, and maybe there's some scaling, scaling involved later on, and they don't really have any of the other danger signs, they're not febrile, etc., and then it goes away without really doing much. That's the history that you get, and it's related, uh, as you said, for, to some antibiotic. 
People have certainly tried to do skin testing, looking at delayed intradermal testing or patch testing. And delayed intradermal, for those that aren't familiar with, is basically the same exact technique that you'd use for an immediate intradermal test, but you read it later on. So you would read it at 24, 48 hours, similar to what you might do with the patch test. Mm. But the, the initial technique is, is identical. So one can certainly do that. But especially, I would say, for antibiotics, that type of testing is generally not very predictive. And this has been shown for a lot of different antibiotics. So occasionally you might get some positive, but you'll certainly see people who are challenge positive yet have negatives on either delayed intradermal or a patch test. Now, obviously, there's, there's some medications where it, it may be more useful for, so for delayed reactions to radiocontrast media. Delayed intradermal drug test might be more helpful for it. But for the typical antibiotic exanthem, I would say I rarely have done that. The times that I've done that are in patients, and, and obviously this does come up, where there are multiple antibiotics involved, and there could be several that are equally probable. And in some cases, if you do have a positive test, Maybe that would say, okay, well, I won't challenge to that patient that one first. And, and we've done that on occasion, and I, and I think it can be helpful. But the predictive value, uh, both negative and positive for these tests, is not very well known. I don't think it's certainly not routine for benign exanthems. So in terms of challenges, the challenges can be done in a lot of different ways. And if you look at a lot of different studies for antibiotics in particular, when they're talking about delayed uh, reactions, a lot of times they'll start by having the patient come in or in their protocol, they'll have them come in, maybe give them a tenth of the dose, and then have them come back a week later, then they'll give them the full dose. And then after they find out that hardly anyone's reacting, they say, this is taking too much time, let's just all do it at one point. And so Mm -hmm. they end up uh, doing the one tenth and then the, the full dose, and they do it all in one day. To me, the, my approach is based on how bad that exanthem was. So if it was really benign and didn't cause the patient a lot of morbidity, then I think a full-dose challenge is reasonable. And then you just wait and see what, what happens. What we now know, and this has been shown with a lot of antibiotics, is that a single dose, a single therapeutic dose of an antibiotic can cause a delayed reaction for up to a week later. So... There's been an ongoing controversy about how long for patients who, say, have a delayed reaction to penicillin, will a single dose identify or do you need to give them a five-day treatment? And what I think we're finding out now through several studies is if you wait long enough, that single dose might cause that delayed exanthem. So probably a a single dose is all you really need. Mm. And we do think probably a week later, is the timing frame that it can happen up till that point in time. Now, someone who says they come in and they have a, an exanthem that you know lasted weeks and required topical, maybe even systemic steroids and was sort of a big deal, then I think doing more of a graded challenge and giving them small doses and stretched out by a week at a time is not unreasonable. I think that's more the exception than the rule though. So overall, your general approach for those mild, uncomplicated exanthems that don't necessarily necessitate any specific treatment would be a single dose as opposed to multi-dose and a single-day challenge. That's correct, yeah. (laughs) Do you think that there's a role for desensitization at all or 
a much more gradual incremental reintroduction, like over like several hours or days in some of these patients with just benign exanthems are like we like we used to do for sulfa. Yeah, the HIV literature yeah. has that literature right. there. I think that's a, a, a great question, and I hope that's something that we're going to address in our updated drug allergy practice parameter that we're working on right now. I do think the literature on this has, I don't know if it, whether it's changed or whether there's the interpretation of it is a little bit different. And I think the sulfonamide issue is a perfect uh, example to discuss because this is where, you know, if you look at, at the desensitizations for sulfonamides, there's 20-some protocols that you can find, and they're all equally successful. They all work. The big question has always come down, well, are they really inducing drug tolerance? Was it a true desensitization, or did it just take you 10 steps to do a, a, a greater challenge? Hmm. Or was it completely unnecessary? Hmm. So there actually have been several studies. There's been at least three studies that have looked at this. And, and it, there's even a meta-analysis of these few studies that have looked at this, believe it or not. And if you look at these, so these were studies that basically compared single dose versus some type of uh, multi-day or multi-dose, quasi, whatever you want to call it, some type of desensitization, you know, et cetera. And as an allergist, how we view success after a desensitization is we say, was how many patients were able to get to a therapeutic dose and how many had a rash? That's what we would say. That's our outcome. And for two of the studies that use that outcome, it was exactly the same. The largest study, which was a U.S. study, they did a similar thing and their immediate outcome, their, their outcome at a week, which we say a week's long enough, was no different between one dose challenge versus this several day thing. Mm. However, their primary outcome was who was on drug six months later. And as it turned out, six months later, there were more people on drug if they underwent the quote desensitization versus the single challenge. Now, why did most of those people fall off? Headache, fever, those aren't really manifestations of drug hypersensitivity. So I think it was, but that's how they interpreted that. And then the, and when the Cochrane people looked at it, they looked at it the same way. As an allergist looking at that, I say, mm -hmm. it looks the same. Uh. So I don't see a reason. There's a very recent publication in Jackie in practice mm -hmm. in February from Elizabeth Phillips group at Vanderbilt, where they looked at a both a small HIV population as well as an immunocompetent group. And they basically did either single or uh, two-step challenges instead of these long desensitizations. And on the whole, what they found was that about close to 90% tolerated these challenges. And if, you, if your reaction was, oh, I had a history of reacting to some type of sulfa drug, 98% passed. Mm -hmm. So I honestly believe that this whole delayed desensitization, these uh, several days or several hours for sulfonamide delayed things, is I think it's smoke and mirrors. I, I really don't think it's a true desensitization. And, and no one yet has, at least for sulfonamides, has shown that here's a patient that we challenged and reacted, and then we went under did a desensitization. There's occasional case uh, reports of things that have happened like that, but 
it's not really clear that these things really work. So I think for sulfonamides, to me, I think a single dose challenge or two step, depending on what their reaction history is the simplest way. And it answers the question. You don't have to repeat it every time they need the drug. And I really hope that's what we'll end up saying in our updated parameter. I, I think um, we will. So to take that further then, how often have you had the situation where the patient failed a challenge or desensitization, but still needs the drug? Have you gone to just treating them through it? And if you've had, is there something that's successful that should be considered and to facilitate that? Yeah. So this whole concept of treating through is, I think, something that people have talked about a lot. And I suspect there is an enormous amount of collective anecdotal information, but very little published information about doing this. There are, there's been, there was a, a publication and in practice, you know, in the last couple of years of a group of patients, I think it was 18 patients mm -hmm. or so that had uh, cellulitis and they were all on antibiotics. And they said, all right, we're just going to decide to treat through. And what, what happened was there were a few patients that the antibiotics weren't working, they switched them out. There were a few patients, I think three patients that either had uh, a bump in eosinophils or a bump in liver function tests, they decided we're gonna stop. But the bulk of the patients, at least 12 of them, they said, we're just gonna keep on marching on with the antibiotic. And interestingly, at discharge, eight of those 12 patients were completely free of the rash despite not mm -hmm. stopping the antibiotic. And all of them were better. Now, there are some caveats. Obviously, they were very careful in terms of these were the benign exanthems, nothing worrisome in the history. And none of them were treated with sulfonamides. Now, why do we separate sulfonamides? I think we just separate sulfonamides out of our fear that sulfonamides are bad actors. Mm -hmm. And they certainly deserve that reputation. But in reality, it is certainly the rare patient that's going to have a severe reaction with sulfonamide. So you could do the same thing with sulfonamide. You would just need to be that much more aware. So I think this is what we do in these patients is we watch them carefully. We will do some laboratory monitoring. We'll look at their EOs. We'll look at their liver function tests, make sure they're not having fever. For outpatients, we will you know, either have photos or try and have them come in. And now that we're doing telehealth, it makes it even that much easier that we can probably monitor. So I do think it's certainly an option. And we've definitely seen patients who, if you just stick to your guns, that rash goes away despite not changing the therapy. And it's, it's great for the patient. Do they need like topical therapies or systemic therapies to facilitate it? You could certainly use uh, topical therapies, I think. And we are aggressive with antihistamines. And whether those things really I'm sure there's probably some degree of supportive care and some amelioration of their symptoms, but why this process burns, is, no, nobody really knows. No one's really studied yeah. these patients, and I think it, it would be very interesting to do so to see what is happening immunologically. Is this really inducing tolerance by just continuing the drug, or was this a reaction for other reasons that had nothing to do with the antibiotic? Who knows? Wow, that was an incredible discussion. We'll just take a break now. This will be the end of part one of our episode. Please tune in for our next episode. And as always, please give us your feedback, corrections, suggestions, and of course, rate us on iTunes. That email address is allergytalkoneword 
at acaai.org. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to the procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professionals, services, or methods that might be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Doctors Lee and Kalangara have nothing to disclose. Dr. David Kahn has received royalties for being editor of a book on drug allergy testing by Elsevier.